In 2005, Israel gave up the Gaza Strip, something that they had obtained after the Six-Day War when many nations were threatening to annihilate her. But they did turn it over to the Palestinians as a gesture of land for peace. Any thinking person knew this would make no difference. Immediately, rockets were fired into Israel from Gaza, and that has been going on all these years. So much for the idea that a two-state solution will bring peace to the Middle East. I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that this is our topic on today's World News Brief. I'm Bob Siegel. It's always good to be with you. I wish the news were better. As I mentioned, since the year 2005, rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel. This was after all the Israelis moved out, after the land was given over entirely to the Palestinians. But while that's been happening for years, this last week has turned into the most horrific bloodbath in human history. What's been going on up to now is nothing compared to what's happened in this last week. It's not just about missiles anymore. It's certainly the most barbaric series of murders in modern Jewish history with the exception of the Holocaust. Around the time that Gaza was given back to the Palestinians, they elected Hamas into power. Many assume that since Hamas came into power through democracy, that automatically makes them good. Hamas calls for the complete and utter destruction of Israel. But frankly, for those who want to draw a distinction between the average Palestinians and Hamas, the Palestinian charter does not acknowledge Israel's right to exist either. And you know who else doesn't acknowledge Israel's right to exist? Iran. Yeah, Iran, that country whose butt President Biden keeps kissing by cutting checks for humanitarian reasons. Of course, Iran defines humanitarian reasons as sponsoring terrorism, and it's one of the chief sponsors of terrorism around the world. Now, initially, the Biden administration insisted that Iran didn't have anything to do with this. They're not denying that they sponsor terrorism, but they've been denying that they have anything to do with this particular set of attacks. That's a narrative that's becoming increasingly more difficult for them. For one thing, it contradicts investigation by the Wall Street Journal. But put the Wall Street Journal aside, Hamas openly brags that they've been getting the money from Iran. Now, if Iran is their chief benefactor and they haven't been getting the money from Iran, that would be a stupid thing to publicly brag about. And what would be their reason? What would be the upshot in ticking off their chief benefactor? Of course, the money's coming from Iran. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. And it's getting harder and harder for the Biden administration to deny it. I'm going to mention a few of the atrocities that have been perpetrated against Israeli citizens right on the other side of the Gaza border, but I'm not even coming close to listing everything. You can actually watch a lot of this stuff, ironically. Israeli women were being raped, and the rape was sent by live stream to their own Facebook pages from their own smartphones. A naked girl was paraded in public. Whole families were burned alive in their homes. A dead mother was found next to a fetus removed from her with the umbilical cord still attached. Parents watched children murdered first, then they were murdered themselves. Babies' heads have been cut off. Babies' heads. We haven't seen the likes of this since the Holocaust, but unlike the Holocaust, which the 
the Nazis tried to hide and deny. These people are reveling in it. They're bragging about it. They're live streaming it. At the moment, Israel has a lot of sympathy. Not nearly enough, as you're going to see, but some. But Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, has vowed retaliation, has vowed that the face and landscape of the Middle East will never be the same again after they are done with Hamas, after they are done with the Gaza Strip. After that happens, I believe the narrative will change, and all we'll hear about is the collateral damage of innocent civilians when Israel went in there to wipe out Hamas from Gaza. Even though Israel, unlike Hamas, is sending text messages warning civilians to flee, they're trying to minimize the collateral damage, but of course they won't be able to minimize all of it, and they will get blamed. In time, you just watch. We'll hear a lot about Israel's retaliation instead of the barbaric things going on against Israel this past week. But even with the barbaric things going on against Israel this week, there are all kinds of people that don't seem to care, and it's coming from the most elite groups. About 30 Harvard student organizations claimed Israel is entirely responsible for the Gaza attacks because they're oppressors. They're occupiers. None of that is true, but they believe that. And Harvard is just one of many schools across the country doing this. A few of those student groups have since gotten embarrassed because of a lot of public opinion against them. They've taken that back. The UN Secretary General has already called Israel not to retaliate. The Biden administration put up a tweet calling for no retaliation. Then they took it down because they ended up with egg on their faces. Palestinians in New York are shouting, gas the Jews. You don't think this is like people defending the Holocaust? Well, the people protesting against Israel, they think it's like defending the Holocaust. What else does gas the Jews mean? And they're also shouting gas the Jews in Australia. Black Lives Matter is blaming Israel for the atrocities against Israel's citizens. Rashida Tlaib, the Palestinian congresswoman who has a Palestinian flag at her office, was asked to comment about babies getting their heads cut off. She refused to comment. Later that day, she went ahead and did an interview and said she was insulted that she was even asked the question. But maybe she was asked because of the vile things she said about Israel over these years and the fact that she's been pretty clear that Israel has no right to exist by joining groups such as divestment against Israel, which is exactly what those organizations are all about. Why do we have so many people believing this stuff? Well, for one thing, we have nations like Qatar that are sending their own money to change the curriculum and the narrative of our schools. Our schools are being taught in large parts by a lot of communist professors and the ones that aren't communists are too spineless to say anything out of fear of losing their jobs. A few brave people have spoken up and have lost their jobs. Where did this narrative come from that somehow the Jews are occupying somebody else's land? Did you know there's a narrative that says the Jews have no claim to that land historically at all? Even though they've lived there since the time of Moses, the time of David, the time of Solomon, they were conquered by the Babylonians. They returned after the Babylonian exile then they lived under the Romans. And when they were revolting against the Romans, the Romans who called the land Judea, we see that on coins. We see that from Roman historians like Tacitus. They called it Judea. Emperor Hadrian, early in the second century, when there was a Jewish uprising, renamed the land Syria Palestinia. That is the Latinized version of Philistine, an ancient enemy of the Jews who had long since become extinct, but people knew about them. Hadrian changed the name of the land to Palestine to rub 
the Jews' noses in it. Up to then, the land was never called Palestine. It became the informal nickname for the land, though, in the 2,000 years after that. And Arabs came into the land as a result of Muslim expansion after Muhammad came into the scene around 600 AD. For many, many years, we had both Jews and Arabs living in that land. Near the turn of the 20th century, while working to create new multiple states, Great Britain, with the cooperation of the League of Nations, an early prototype to the United Nations, decided they would also offer an opportunity for Jews all over the world to return to their homeland. Many Jews were still living there, but a lot of them had been chased away and brought into slavery by the Romans. So this was important. The Jews were being persecuted all over Europe primarily. This invitation, though, early in the 20th century was called the Balfour Declaration. Needless to say, grateful Jews responded with terrific enthusiasm. Indeed, many children of Abraham did migrate from Russia, Western Europe, and other corners of the globe where they had lived for some 2,000 years in ghettos at the mercy of pogroms or harsh policies of our anti-Semitic governments. What exactly was offered to the Hebrew immigrants by the League of Nations? Everything we would today call Israel, everything we would today call Jordan, and most of what we would today call occupied territories. When the Jews arrived, many of them purchased land from Arab lords. What was the proportion of Arab and Jew in Palestine prior to the Balfour Declaration? There were more Arabs than Jews in the land, resulting from Muslim expansion, but the truth is there was really only a handful of each people group. In paradoxical fashion, the British, after inviting the Jews to return, sold over 75% of Palestine to the Arabs, creating a new country called Transjordan. This is an extremely important and seldom taught fact. Please catch this. Some 75% of what had been offered to the Jews was sold behind their backs to the Arabs instead. Not only were the Arabs offered a separate Palestinian state long ago, but they have been living in one since the early part of the 20th century. It's called Jordan, a country three times the size of what remained for the Jews. The Jews accepted this betrayal only because they had no other choice. After all, a sliver of the promise was better than no land at all. But the Arab nations and Arabs living in Palestine Palestine, again called Palestine after Emperor Hadrian's nickname. They didn't want the Jews to have even a sliver. And fresh controversy broke out over what to do with the remaining 25%. When the UN put pressure on Great Britain to fulfill its promise to the Jews, a country of their own, discussions broke forth over what to do with the remaining 25% of Palestine, which had not been turned into Jordan. The Arabs insisted they were entitled to the remainder of the land. The United Nations placated to them without entirely giving in. A vote was taken and it was decided that the remaining 25% of Palestine would be partitioned. And by the way, they weren't calling it Palestine. They were just calling it Jews and Arabs. The term Palestine, resurrected from Emperor Hadrian, became popular in the 1960s as a publicity ploy by Yasser Arafat, trying to create this narrative that an indigenous nation had lived there for many years called Palestine. None of that was true. And so it's a myth that the Arabs in so-called Palestine were never offered a state of their own. As a matter of fact, they were offered two states of their own. The first one they accepted, and it has remained a state to this day, Jordan. The second state was the partition of the remaining 25% of the land. This state, the Arabs turned down. Why did they turn down a chance to have half this area? Because they figured they were entitled to 
all the area. And the decision of the United Nations, the same United Nations that Arab countries had joined and promised to abide by, meant nothing to them. After the partition vote from the United Nations, Israel declared its independence on May 14, 1948. One day later, five Arab armies invaded Israel from Egypt, Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. Jews pleaded with Palestinian, again I use the word in quotes, Palestinian Arabs to remain in their home. Although many of the Arabs did flee or join the invading armies, a considerable portion of Arabs remained in Israel. This interesting fact is seldom discussed. More than 300,000 Arabs fled Israel around that time and about 160,000 remained. Today, Israel still contains a vital Arab population and these Arabs have more rights in Israel than any Arab in any Arab country. In 1948, when Israel beat the odds and defeated the multiple invading nations, the problem of refugees came up. We always hear about the Arab refugees from Israel, but they were not the only refugees. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were kicked out of Arab lands too. All of the Jewish refugees were welcomed into Israel, whereas Arabs who wanted to resettle in Arab countries were, for the most part, denied admission. Jordan was an exception, but even in Jordan, most of the refugees were confined to camps. By the way, the Arabs that fled, fled because the nations surrounding Israel told them to flee. They said, get out of the way. We're coming through, but the war will only last five minutes and you can return. Well, it didn't turn out that way for them. So today's narrative says that Israel is illegally occupying land. Some because they even exist at all. Others felt that Israel had a right to exist, but they felt that there was an illegal occupation following a war in 1967. During this year, several decades after the rebirth of Israel, nine different nations, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Algeria, Kuwait, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq declared war on Israel and promised to exterminate every Jew. They weren't talking about any kind of two-state solution. Egypt is ready to plunge into a total war that will be the end of Israel. That was Radio Cairo, May 17, 1967. Surprising the world with a preemptive strike, Israel defeated the Arabs in just six days. At that time, their territory was expanded to the West Bank, the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, and the Sinai. They also took the remainder of Jerusalem, half of which had been under Jordanian control after the War of Independence. The Sinai, they returned to Egypt in a peace deal with Jimmy Carter. I already mentioned that in 2005, the Gaza Strip was returned. They've been having trouble with missiles from the Gaza Strip ever since then. And then, of course, that leads up to all the horrific things coming from Gaza this week. That's quite the crash course. I have a whole book on this. If you need a primer. And I suspect that most of you listening, even those of you that support Israel, have never heard a lot of this. But I have a book called The Holocaust Against Israel. You can get it on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. It's a great primer for those that need a crash course history of the Middle East. It's written in a pop style. It's an easy read, but it is documented. In the meantime, let us continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And by the way, the same nations calling for the destruction of Israel are calling for the destruction destruction of the United States. I just thought I'd throw that in. Israel's future is our future. Thank you for joining us today. This is Bob Siegel making the obvious obvious and inviting you to the next episode of World News Brief. <laughs>